You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, your co-host. Uh, special episode this week, I talked to Roberto Ferdman from Vice News. Uh, he was the correspondent on a series of reports from Louisville, Kentucky, in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder that looked into the official account of the police no-knock raid and the uh, highly flawed grand jury investigation that followed. Um, Roberto and his crew received the 2020 George Polk Award for television reporting. So here it is, my interview uh, with Roberto Ferdinand. Welcome, uh, Roberto Ferdman. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. First, congratulations on your Polk Award. <laughs> Thank you. I think uh, of all of the interviews I've done for Polk Awards, this was the most overall minutes of uh, air time, reading time of all of it. So you've done more than a half dozen pieces over the last year in Louisville. Starting June of last year, was that when the first one was published? Yeah, we first went there at the end of May, like just as protests were were kind of breaking out across the country. And the first piece must have run like at the very, very beginning of June. So walk me through when you're coming in to cover a protest situation of this kind. Um, what were you thinking the story was at the very beginning there? And what are you looking for in in the first few days um, that you're spending in town? Well, the place this starts is I get a call. I've been sitting on my butt at home, as you know, most people around this country had for two full months. And um, one of our executive producers is like, do you want to go to Louisville tonight? <laughs> and I, I asked if I could have like an hour to, to get my stuff together. But I, I said yes. And when I went there, I thought I was just going to go cover protests. You know, I, I knew that the protests had, yeah. were just breaking out. It seemed like they were in the process of in, intensifying. And I thought I was going to go and, and be amongst the crowd, see how police were reacting, you know, speak to people in Louisville to get a sense of how George Floyd's death impacted them. And then also how the protests in Louisville were specifically about this case from there involving Breonna Taylor, a name that now a lot of people know. I didn't know that we would end up spending 
you know, almost a year working on this case, digging up files, records, videos, documents. I had no clue. It wasn't until probably a week in that we realized there was a lot more here than what we understood. And by a lot more here, I mean, there was nothing being shared with the public. And because of the pandemic, because of just the the circumstances around all of this, almost every other media outlet came and they actually did leave after covering the protests for the first few days. At that point, where was the narrative about what had happened uh, in the apartment during the shooting? Of the facts that are available now, say, what percentage of those facts were available then? And how much did you really um, know going in about the actual shooting? So at the end of May, when these protests break out, I mean, there was probably like 1% of the information that's now available um, out, out there in the public for folks. And pretty much the entirety of it was contained in this hour-long press conference that was held by the Commonwealth attorney, Tom Wine, who was dropping the charges against Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, his name's Kenneth Walker, um, without prejudice, meaning they could eventually be brought back. And in that press conference, he shared that they could not conclude with absolute certainty that Kenneth Walker knew there were the police when he fired his, his gun. And for that reason, they were, they were dropping the case. And there they shared a little clip of his interview with investigators within the police department. They shared a little clip of an interview that the officer who was shot in the leg did with police investigators. And they shared a picture of a whiteboard that police had used in advance of the raid to kind of like help prepare for this raid. It was part of a group of them. That was like basically it, aside from you know, the press conference that's given the day after it actually happens, which is two months before this. So almost nothing. We knew that a black woman had died in her home. We knew that her uh, boyfriend spent two weeks in jail and another month plus on house arrest. And the police and city were refusing to release just about any form of basic information about the case. For someone who might have a, a similar experience of going into a place, I assume that you don't have a lot of previous history with the city of Louisville. I had never been to Louisville before. Never been to Louisville. So a lot of your reporting on this story involves the mayor, the city council, the uh, accountability, the public integrity unit of the police force. There's this whole constellation of local authority and understanding how information sort of passed through that is pretty vital to what you were able to find in the story. I wonder if you could talk about how you sort of navigated that world. And as time went on and you were able to find sources within that world, how were you able to get information out of the uh, Louisville political structure? I think that's a really good question because I had never before, I never before spent this much time just consistently on the same story. And I had never through a story gained an understanding of how kind of like mid to large scale city politics work, the interaction of these different institutions, the mayor's office, the police department, the attorney general, the Commonwealth attorney, the U.S. attorney. If someone asked me to explain how these work in tandem in a city, I would have given like a BS answer um, with with some basic understanding of 
of local politics in the U.S. But our initial approach was to go to the west side of Louisville, which is predominantly black, which is poorer than the other parts of the city, and which is the part that is most affected by the police department there, um, to to understand like how they viewed this and why this was so upsetting to them and whether they saw the writing on the wall that this sort of raid could happen, that someone could die uh, during this. And that was really instructive. And I think that it was really helpful in putting us on a course to both not view this story in like a myopic way where we just, you know, assumed, for instance, that the that the city or police department's kind of portrayal that um, this was maybe a case of, of one rogue officer or, um, you know, this was, it wasn't that as weird as it sounds. It helped us kind of expand the possibilities um, and then go out in earnest and figure out where we could find information. So um, that put us, I think, on the right course. Then you kind of figure out where to get information through trial and error. And like with anything in life, you generally end up doing it by subtraction. So we first go to the police department to ask for records that we know are relevant, think are relevant, um, at the very least know are not being shared with the public, and we immediately get stonewalled. They're misrepresenting Kentucky law. They're telling me that it's going to be, I mean, months until they're going to get us basic records and things that I know that they have already put together because it has to be in the investigative file and in the documents they're sharing with the attorney general's office. So we understood it to mean they're not going to play game. We have to find a different way. And over the course of, I mean, it took us months. We developed sources that increasingly led to other sources that got us into the department. So we have a few sources inside of the department that helped us get things that weren't being shared. Also vet things um, which was really important. We befriended probably like every attorney in town because in a place like Louisville, with a police department like the LMPD, most attorneys have touched the case that have involved the police department, whether it meant representing a police officer who was charged or accused of something um, or someone who was bringing an allegation against the police department. That was also very helpful. The short answer to your question, though, is people. <laughs> reaching out to people, like calling folks, asking if they know anybody, going on Facebook, cold calling folks, using using the clout that we gained also by just going back there to extend our reach because they st people started to trust us um, and then they would vouch for us. So someone knew a police officer that was, that was maybe willing to speak to us off the record. They could personally vouch for us. We weren't just someone from the national media who wanted to speak. We were someone who was taking the time to go back and back and back to Louisville to really understand the story, to understand the community, the needs of the community and concerns of the community, and to not take things that the city or the police department were saying at face value. One of the big revelations um, midway through the arc here comes uh, through the attorney that Brianna Taylor's family has uh, hired to investigate the case and pretty much throughout the whole thing you're working pretty closely with her family I wonder if you could talk about navigating that relationship and also how 
the investigation of the family sort of uh, worked in tandem with your investigations? So er very early on, at the beginning of June when we got there, we made a point to make contact with the family. That's around the time that we had, I don't know if it was the first or one of the first interviews with Rana Taylor's sister, Janiah Palmer. And that opened the door to then speaking with her mother. And that helped us, it helped us understand the just immediate impact of something like this. But I would, I would actually say that speaking to the family early on, interviewing her sister, who was also very, very close with her and is very close with her boyfriend, Kenny Walker, and the mother kind of allowed us to move on to the pursuit of information. Um, whereas if you were to look at some of the other national coverage, I think that into July and even August and September, there was more emphasis being put on, can we get an interview with uh, Brianna Taylor's mother or with Kenny Walker? Yeah, I think it was helpful that, that we had spoken to them. We already had a line of communication with them and we were instead focusing on getting information that was being withheld from the public by any means necessary. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that by any means necessary element. Um, when you started to focus on the grand jury proceedings, which are secret in general, which honestly, like all of this stuff, I, I'm curious how you even learned all these conventions. Like I find it totally random in court what can and can't be recorded and released or whatever. But at least at the beginning, these grand jury proceedings uh, were secret. What does someone in your position need to be able to publish those? If they come into your possession, what is the process of, of vetting things, um, both the audio of the grand jury proceedings, which I guess was released, but also uh, a fair amount of the footage What's the process of deciding whether you can or can't show it on your show like? You know, it's it's honestly kind of like the way in which you go about learning any sort of basic like life skill. Like I recently learned how my boiler works and how to know if something's wrong and what to do if it needs to be fixed. Yep. I didn't know it up until something broke. So I didn't understand the complexity of grand juries. I didn't understand the debate over grand juries, the viability of them, until all of a sudden there was a grand jury and we were trying to figure out how it was going to work and how they were going to select the folks who were going to be on it and whether we would have access to any of the discussions, the names of, of the jurors or anything like that. I, I mean, it was just a process of calling people up. We, we called up former prosecutors or, um, or current prosecutors in Louisville. We called up folks who had worked in different Commonwealth attorneys' offices, people who had dealt with grand juries. Uh, and we even spoke with someone who, who studies grand juries nationally, who explained to us, this was, you know, I learned this in this conversation with, with this fellow, that, that grand juries are actually not allowed in, in many states. They mostly remain part of the legal system, justice system in the South. And there's, yeah, there, there's a kind of a heated debate about what to do, about whether to maintain them or not. So, you kind of learn about everything through trial by fire, about that, about whether or not you can publish something. I mean, the number of emails back and forth that our team has collectively with our legal squad, I mean, I don't even, I couldn't tell you many. We thanked them profusely after every single endeavor because they helped us make sure that 
you know, we weren't compromising anyone's identity, that we weren't doing anything that would put us or the, or the company in a tight spot legally. And fortunately, because we had developed sources, all sorts of different types of sources, including folks inside of the police department, we were able to vet the existence of some of the stuff that was leaked to us. I, I want to talk a little bit about this as a writing process. So when you bring up something like the history of grand juries, that's like a super important thing to understand in the story. And you're doing this show, which is a 30-minute nightly show, 23 with uh, the commercials cut out. And in some of these instances, you have the whole runtime and some of them you're doing like a seven or eight minute runtime. How do you tell the story of something like grand juries, which is super essential to understanding uh, what happened at the lack of charges of murder in the Breonna Taylor case? But I think we just spent like three or four minutes of our red time talking about it there. So it's it's kind of a rabbit hole when you start thinking about it. The short answer is you is you don't. You find the best way to inform an audience in as little amount of time as possible. Like what information you have to equip them with and what information they can get elsewhere. Because we never viewed ourselves as the sole teller of this broader story. If someone had a question about grand juries in general or how this specific grand jury is put together, they could go to the Courier Journal, the local newspaper there. They could go to WDRB, another outlet that spent a lot of time and resources covering the case. And on some level, are you starting to project forward, oh, we're going to do this episode in the future. This piece of data belongs in that future episode when we tackle this part of the case. Because the last string of pieces that you've done, which really start to uncover what really happened within the police unit and some of the larger motivations it really does feel like each of these pieces is building on each other and you kind of need some of the context from the previous ones to fully appreciate where it's ended up now. The release of different pieces information was very intentional on our part because we had like a three-week runway to go through what was a lot of information, but then also condense it into storylines, uh, try to you know report out little bits of it. Uh, so we, we definitely thought about that. And then our constraint was on the other end, which was we knew that around a, roughly a certain period, the AG would announce the result of his office's investigation and, and the grand jury proceedings. And we knew that we wanted to get some of this information out beforehand. So we had storylines mapped out and we knew the order that they should be in, but we didn't have days selected. It wasn't like there was a period, I think, toward the end we were like, we should just get this stuff out there. So there were days in which we published two different stories about it. But it was kind of a, like a tragedy of riches. I mean, we're, we, were, we had like all the stuff that people didn't have. Was one of your considerations that some of these things would come out before you were able to fully report them or that, you know, some of these things that are, are very news hooky, where you've actually sort of been able to dig into them. I'm curious if, if the clock was ticking uh, on these things coming out. Yeah, absolutely. We, we wanted to be the ones to break different parts of the story, but we also wanted to do that for a reason other than notoriety. 
we felt like we had a, a really deep understanding of the story. We also, because of that, understood what we didn't know. And I, I think that other outlets had pressures that we didn't. There was not pressure put on our team to, once we had information, get it out there as soon as possible. We had the ability to sit on it, figure out the implications of it. A pretty good example is something that we actually have not written about or talked about or featured really in, in any of the pieces, which is this question over the search warrant, whether there was the person who put it together lied, whether it was um, a legal search warrant, whether there was any sort of other funny business. And the reason why we didn't do that is because we didn't feel like we totally understood what happened in the kind of background or what happened behind closed doors yet. We have a better understanding today. You know, in the near future, we will put out more pieces about the case and about policing in, in the city and state more broadly. But we felt like the, the story might be more complicated than it seemed. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of ongoing mysteries, you know, even at the end, like uh, one that stuck with me is uh, I think in the very last episode you published, someone describes a bullet that was fired through the ceiling. And you're like, oh, that wasn't followed up on in the grand jury investigation. I was like, grand jury investigation? I want it followed up on now. Like, um, I'm curious how you deal with the ongoing things you don't know in the case and how many of them you feel like you, you want to solve. And I guess in a larger sense, where does a story like this stop? As you said, it starts spiraling into a larger story about policing and cities all, I want to solve all of them. We want to solve all of them. <laughs> um, but I'm, ha I'm so happy that you asked about the bullet through the ceiling because it's been a personal obsession of mine. I don't, I think that it's a, a significant detail because it's, it's pretty hard to square or to reconcile two bullets going through the ceiling. We know there are two bullets now that went through the ceiling with the accounts by the officers involved. Their accounts, their testimonies don't really leave room for someone to fire two bullets up through the ceiling. Um, so every time that we're working on something or going back or we're reading any sort of internal summaries, investigations, uh, anything we get our hands on, I'm constantly going to go see if someone else has picked up on this or has asked about it. And there are all sorts of things that dangle. I mean, when you're going through a case like this and you are over and over again reading interviews that are being done with suspects, witnesses, etc., you know, every time that someone doesn't follow up on something, an investigator, or doesn't ask a question or anything like that, a, like a part of you dies because you're like, this was the opportunity to ask about this thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's constant. There are pretty few other places within just society broadly where an institution is allowed to investigate itself and do it mostly internally control all the information that is gathered as part of investigations, that is disseminated as a result of those investigations. One of the many crazy things that we've learned throughout this process is that most of the department's records are still kept in paper, not electronically. You know, is that because it's a gargantuan task to digitize them? Maybe. Is that because paper trails are much easier to hide, maybe. So 
knowing that the police account was suspect, what did you trust when you were working on this story? What did you find reliable? Video, <laughs> audio, re video recordings, audio recordings. Obviously, when you develop a large Rolodex of sources, you part of your job as a journalist is to understand each of those sources. So, you know, when we're talking to someone who is sharing information with us or helping us and has very specific motivations to do it that aren't just purely I want the truth out, we know that and and we get the information from them, understanding that we have to double check these things. I did not understand the full extent to which police departments are willing to lie and pretty flagrantly. I mean, there's one instance that sticks in my head. It's like the, the perfect example of this that happened during the protest in Louisville. And it's that one of the police department's Bearcats, the kind of like big military vehicles that SWAT will use when they really want to intimidate them, what was in an accident with a car. And the police department immediately following this or shortly after it gave a press conference saying that the car rammed into the Bearcat. And what is amazing about that is that they, I think, got like the testimony or they or one officer, a couple officers went and told them what happened and they just went ahead and gave a press conference. It turned out that their own security apparatus had footage that showed that the opposite happened. The Bearcat rammed into the car and they had to correct their statement. Is there a better example of how disinformation is shared by a police department? <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very much for this interview. That was fun. That is the end of the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Roberto Ferdman. Thank you to our editor, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. And thanks to everyone over at the Polk Awards. We will be back tomorrow with another interview with a winner. See you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.